We are stuck trying to answer this question about what we should be eating, even though the answer to that question is important. It's not the question we should be asking. The question I think we need to focus on is the how. How do we eat greens? How do we eat dairy? Eating of food is more than just meeting those biological needs. It's that opportunity for education and, and connection. When we start eating, how much to eat, what we eat, when we stop eating, I'm convinced that we can, can, can figure out. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Oh my goodness, friends, this is such a cool episode. So we talk a lot on this show about different diets and the role of what we eat in our health and wellness. Bill Schindler really dives deep into something that a lot of people are not talking about, and that is our true evolutionary and ancestral diet, not so much from the types of foods that we are eating, but rather how we are eating those foods. It's really honestly a paradigm shift when it comes to viewing food and what we should be eating and how we should be eating it. I cannot wait to hear all of your thoughts on this episode. It is just so fun, so cool, so enlightening, so eye-opening, and I really think you guys will enjoy it. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash eat like a human. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then check out my Instagram. Also find the Friday announcement post there. And again, comment to enter to win something that I love. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric, or focused on a certain type of person, and I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it, so please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, Spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal Spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that Spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking Spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. 
Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or algae and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with. And to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body. So it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, It may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque. It can help alleviate pain and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code Melanie Avalon, as well as a 20% off code when you text Avalon X to 877-861-8318. That's Avalon X to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys If you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin so you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, 
their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code CLEANFORALL20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash clean beauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences. And I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a band of beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Bill Schindler. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. So today's author, well, he's so much more than just an author, but he wrote a book called Eat Like a Human, Nourishing Foods and Ancient Ways of Cooking to Revolutionize Your Health. And so when I saw the title of this book, and actually I'd heard you on some other podcasts, but when I first saw the title of the book, seeing the title, I thought that, not that it would be just like any other paleo book, but I thought it would be something like a paleo book. (laughs) So I didn't know, you know, what all would be in it. And oh my goodness, my mind was blown. Listeners, this book is just mind blowing. It's basically the history of what made us human from an evolutionary perspective and how that affects our diet and how we handle and process food and the food we eat and what food we should or shouldn't be eating. And that might be a trick question, but he goes into so many topics. I cannot wait to ask you all of my questions. For listeners, a little bit about Dr. Bill Schindler. He is an internationally known archaeologist, a primitive technologist, and I'm sure we will go into what that means exactly, and a chef. And he founded and directs the Eastern Shore Food Lab that has a mission to preserve and revive ancestral dietary approaches to create a nourishing, ethical, and sustainable food system. He operates the Modern Stone Age Kitchen, which right before this, I was looking at the website. just looks so cool. I would love to go there. And you might have seen him on TV because he's co-starred in the National Geographic 
fanfic channel series, The Great Human Race, which was in 2016. And he's also currently the focus of Wired Magazine's YouTube series, Basic Instincts and Food Science. So if that doesn't make you excited hearing all of that, I mean, I don't know what will. So (laughs) Dr. Schindler, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for that amazing introduction. I'm thrilled to be here. Did you narrate the audiobook? I did. It's very, it was my first book. And it was a strange situation. I, I asked to, if I could do it because I thought it was you know, such a personal book on so many levels. And they said, yeah, you can audition for it. <laughs> I, said, I, can, I had to audition against all these people who are professional readers. And, and luckily, they allowed me to do it. They did that to me, too. And then they only let me record the introduction. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. And I had recorded audiobooks before. Like. <laughs> And I'm a podcaster. Like people know my voice. So that's that's so funny. I will say it was one of the hardest things I have ever done. I know, right? It was exhausting. Oh my gosh. But it was so important. I remember after I I recorded the intro and then I was like, actually, I think I'm glad I'm not recording the whole thing. But yeah, no, I just love when I connect with authors when they did record it because I feel like I've really already met you because I listened to you for so long. But in any case, so your book like you just said, it being such a personal book, you dive deep into your history of how you got so interested in everything that you're doing today. So for listeners who are not familiar with your work, I was wondering if you could tell listeners a little bit about yourself and why are you doing the seemingly, from a cultural perspective, crazy things with food that you are doing with food? Sure. So it may seem like, maybe not from from your audience, but for a lot of people, it may seem strange that somebody who has an archaeological background, which is what I have my PhD in, in archaeology and anthropology, is sitting here writing a book about food and diet and health, especially from a modern perspective. And in my mind, it makes complete sense. And I've spent my, you know, the short version is I've spent my entire life in an unhealthy relationship with food. And I'm sure so many people listening can can probably connect with what that feeling is like. And I've tried, you know, for me, a young kid, I, I was overweight. I got picked on for my weight. I got picked on for the way that I looked. And then, you know, I went through a series, you know, eventually becoming an athlete. I was a division one athlete, at Ohio state uh, in a wrestling program for years. And I traded one unhealthy relationship with food for another. And even though I looked healthy and I looked like an athlete and, and in many ways performing like an athlete, I still had an unhealthy relationship with food. Food went from something that I thought made me look a certain way and maybe get picked on to something that I was scared of that caused me from, you know, missing, making weight and and those sorts of things. And then finally, you know, when everything became sort of a, a crisis mode, when I stopped being a college athlete and I was now a 20 something year old overweight and very unhealthy, you know, young man, and I realized I really needed to do something. And I tried every single diet that was out there and none of them seemed to work. None of them made sense to me. And at the same time that I was sitting here battling with my weight and my body image and my health and my food and my diet, two other important things were happening in my life. One is I had started a family. I, I, I married my wife, Christina, and we started having kids. And it was more and, you know, my understanding of food and diet and health was more about trying to understand how to feed myself. And that was even more important. I was you know, having to feed other young humans. And the other thing that was happening was I was really learning a lot about our ancestors, evolution, archaeology, ancient foodways. And it all culminated about 20 years ago or so when I realized that that part of my life, you know, that understanding of ancestral diets was the key component to understanding how we should be feeding ourselves 
today. And it's made all the difference in my health, all the difference in my family's health. And we just wanted to share it with the world. So that's why we wrote the book. I love that so much. And actually, that's something I've been thinking about a lot recently. When you had your kids, how deep were you into all of this theory, I guess? Like when you were raising them, did you did you try anything like exposing them to a wide variety of foods and letting them just naturally gravitate towards what they ate? Or what was your experience with implementing these new ideas with your kids? You know, it, it's so hard to really, I love when I get to listen to somebody that's really, truly genuine about their own journey and about what they did or didn't do. I would love to sit here and tell you that we went directly from breast milk to raw liver with our kids or something like that, but we didn't. In fact, we were at a place in our lives, you know, we were very young, we were young parents and listening to what the doctors told us. We bought all the baby books. We were getting all the baby magazines and, and listening to everything that, that we, they, we, you know, they told us to do there. And unfortunately, it was in many cases, as you can imagine, the wrong advice. But it, it's a sense of security. If somebody else that you're supposed to be respecting is telling you what to do and you're doing it, it almost takes some of the, at least superficially, takes some of the burden off yourself so you can rest easy at night, even if you're making mistakes. And uh, unfortunately, we we did the wrong thing. Now, the one thing I will say we did right is we went from breast milk to raw milk, and our kids spent their entire childhood on nothing but but raw dairy, which, as far as milk is concerned, so that that I'm very proud of. But we didn't make our own baby food. We didn't introduce organ meats at an early age. We didn't do any of those sorts of things. We had just started out. You know, my oldest daughter now is 18, and so 19, 20 years ago is when we really started on this journey, hardcore. And I was still scared to even give them raw milk at that time because of, you know, if you, if you Google raw milk, especially then, it was going to tell you we're, we're going to kill your family if you gave them raw milk. So we didn't do all of those things. I, I know what I would do now, and I'm happy to talk about that. But it was a journey for not only us with ourselves and what we felt comfortable with, but a journey for our kids, too. Thankfully, that we've taken them along on this journey and did start to hit the hardcore stuff early enough that I think we've set them up for a really healthy future, but we didn't do it at birth, unfortunately. Well, it's motivating since you didn't do it at birth and to know never too late to to start doing these things. Actually, about the raw milk. So, because you talk about the history of why raw milk was demonized, and that really blew my mind. I've been sharing that anytime it comes up in conversation, which it actually has a few times since reading your book. I've been telling people about this. Could you tell listeners a little bit about why we think it's a problem today? Yeah. So, and there's a lot of reasons why, but let me back up and and start to just to to plant the seeds or at least lay the context or foundation. We have been consuming, humans have been consuming the milk of other animals for at least 8,000 years in certain parts of the world. This is not a brand new thing, despite what some people might tell you. So it is fairly new on the, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, but 8,000 years is quite a while. So we've been doing this for 8,000 years at least. And the entirety of that time up until the last 150 or so years, all the milk was completely raw and almost all of it was, had gone through a fermentation process, either intentionally or just because it did before it was consumed. So the dairy, when, when I talk about our ancestors consuming dairy and the dairy most of us are drinking today, they're two completely different foods. In fact, the, the dairy that our ancestors were consuming is, is absent in almost every single grocery store in the country and is illegal in many states still. But what happened with dairy, short version, is that at the end of the 1800s and the early 1900s, you know, people were flocking to cities like they never had before. Those people who were giving up their farms or leaving a rural sort of lifestyle were, were moving into cities and, and went from 
sort of a self-sufficient way of feeding themselves and their families to relying on other people to not only make their food or create their food, but also to ship their food and put it on shelves and those are delivered to their house. And one of the big needs was milk. And several things were happening at that time. So the cities were getting larger. People were leaving their farms. Dairies themselves, with this increased need, especially dairies on the outskirts of cities, needed to get larger as well. And women were going into the workforce more than they ever had before, which is a wonderful thing. But, and, but there are some repercussions of it. And one of the repercussions of young mothers going back to work early, especially without the ability to have electricity and to, and to you know, pump breast milk and save it for the kids, is that kids at earlier ages were getting weaned off of, off of their mothers at, at much younger ages. So they were dependent on milk that was getting bought at, at younger ages as well. We didn't have very good refrigeration either. So you have all these things happening. And then to meet this demand, dairies would team up with distilleries on the outside, you know, certainly demand for, for whiskey and other sorts of spirits at that time. Distilleries and dairies would team up together on the outskirts of these cities. And the spent grains from distilling and creating things like whiskey and rye and, and, and other spirits were then fed to the cows in the dairy. They thought this was a brilliant system, you know, kind of a zero waste sort of system. And these these cows were eating the spent grains from the distillery process and standing in you know filthy conditions. If you read some of the accounts, they're standing knee deep in their own feces. There's no refrigeration, or if there is refrigeration, it's very, very poor. The milk that's coming out of these diseased animals, it, it, the colors are gray and green, and they're adding things like brains, believe it or not, into the milk to try to make this gray milk look white again, because brains give milk sort of this really beautiful bluish white that we think milk is supposed to be. And this adulterated, really nasty, terrible, sickening milk now is still without refrigeration or poor refrigeration is getting shipped into the cities. And these very young kids are drinking this milk and kids are getting, kids and adults are getting sick and many of them are dying as a result of this. So Certainly, it's much more complicated than this, but the, the simple version of it is, okay, so there was, a, there was a huge epidemic happening around the country, especially around these cities, and the government had a choice to make. They could either transform the entire dairy system and make it clean enough to produce high-quality milk that's not going to make anybody sick, or they could pasteurize the milk by boiling it. Now, it sounds like, well, of course, we'll just pasteurize the milk, but it's not that they're, they're taking this, this dangerous, poor-quality milk and they're not making it healthy. They're just putting it into a state that it's not going to kill somebody. So it's really still, you know, high, terrible milk, but it's just not killing anybody. And we thought we licked it. That's great. Every, you know, and this sort of got adopted in many cases around the world and became the standard for a very long period of time. And now anybody trying to buck that system is, is looked at with contempt and, and that it's a very dangerous thing. Again, we've been con safely consuming dairy as humans for over 8,000 years and it's only in the past hundred years that we've considered it a dangerous thing. And it's not dangerous because raw milk is inherently dangerous. It's dangerous because the system is all screwed up. That is insane. I wrote in my notes that you said they also doctored it with like molasses and plaster of Paris and all of this stuff. That is just, that's crazy. Actually, so speaking of, you talked about how we have been eating dairy for so long. What was the, because you talk about this in the book, and this kind of ties into larger topics of what we've been eating as a species, but what was the initial form of dairy? So were we milking cows or were we eating udders, eating cheese from stomachs? <laughs> Whoa. It's so hard because I, from, as, from an archaeological perspective, 
there's things we can talk about that we know fairly well. Like we know when we, our ancestors started accessing bone, long bones from marrow 3.4 million years ago. We know when we started butchering animals for their meat 3.4 million years ago. You know, we know some of these things because they leave an archaeological signature in the ground that we can, we can identify, we can interpret, and, 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 and make a fairly good educated guess about. But there are certain things like when did we start consuming milk from another animal that is almost impossible to, to, to tell. We, we then, in, that, in the absence of that evidence, we look at ethnographic examples or we, we look at living traditional or indigenous groups, see what they're doing, you know, listen to the, some of their stories and those sorts of things. And one thing that's common is that when uh, a traditional group kills an animal, unless there's a taboo about something, which isn't uncommon, but unless there's a taboo about a part of that animal for some sort of religious or cultural reason doesn't get consumed, the entire animal's getting consumed. And one of the things that is consumed often is the udder. And if you kill an animal that's in milk and you consume that udder, you're consuming the, the milk. Now, it's not going to make a major part of your diet. And it's not like us drinking a glass of milk every single day. But it is something that's adding to the diet. It is something that we're introducing you know, into our foods. And so I, I am convinced that for as long as we've been hunting, which I believe is at least 2 million years old, we have been consuming the milk from animals that we've killed that are, you know, that are nursing. So first, a really specific random question and then a more general question. The specific random one is you were saying in your book that early ancestors at some point were eating the entire animal, except they would feed the spleen and the gallbladder to the dogs. I was wondering why they did that. That particular example was... I was butchering a yak with some Mongolian herders out on the steppe in northern Mongolia. And in that particular instance, the gallbladder and the spleen are the only two parts they, they didn't eat. Now, the spleen is typically eaten, and, and I was surprised that they didn't eat the spleen. I don't know why that was the case, and I wished I had asked. The gallbladder is one that, you know, the gallbladder produces bile, and bile is used to help certainly break down fats. And it's very, very bitter if, you, if you've ever tried it. And there are some groups that I've seen that intentionally consume the gallbladder because they're consuming so much fat. And, but there's a lot of groups that won't eat just because it's so incredibly bitter. So they fed it to the dog and I believe they didn't eat the gallbladder because of, of the taste of it. And if anybody's ever, you know, butchered an animal or tried to take the, you know, do something with the liver, the gallbladder is often in many animals attached to the liver. And if you rupture the gallbladder, when you're taking it off of the liver, it, any part of the liver that it kind of bleeds that's greenish goo onto, you would cut away because it kind of makes it nasty tasting. That was more for that modern example. How many tribes have you stayed with? About a dozen it, it, for, for different periods of time. This, was, this wasn't necessarily a tribe as much as it was a, a family that lived out on the steppe in the middle of nowhere, but they were still, you know, according to them, butchering their yaks the way they've been doing it forever. I focus in on that because one of the organ supplements that I use is spleen. I was like, oh, I wonder, I wonder why they're throwing away the spleen. I've never seen anybody else throw away the spleen. Okay. Okay, cool. <laughs> so my broader question from that, you're talking about taboos. And even already during this conversation, you've mentioned a few things. And I responded even by saying that it was yucky, like, you know, brains and that concept. So culturally, why do you think we gravitate towards certain foods. I guess how much of it is cultural and how much of it is evolutionary? How do we land at the diets that we land at today? Wow, that's an awesome question. 
let me start by, by saying this. For some reason, and, and I used to fall into this trap as well, and I still do sometimes, especially for all of us that are sort of in this ancestral dietary space, we like to glorify the past. I, I do as well. I think that we had a lot of things going well for us for a very long period of time that we've more recently screwed up over the past several hundred years. We tend to attach this perception of intentionality to the way our ancestors were doing things. In other words, oh, they knew or they figured out that you need to do this or they, or they decided that this was a great thing to do because of these health benefits or whatever. And while sometimes that might be the case, more often than not, what I believe was going on was that certain groups and certain people, certain families just did something because out of necessity or out of that particular situation, it made sense or whatever. And it stuck. And the people or the cultures or the, you know, the groups or societies that ended up doing these things that were right over and over and over and over again are the ones that had healthier babies and had more babies and those babies had more babies and those babies grew up and were stronger and could take other people's lands away or whatever it is. And, you know, over time, it just became enculturated, not because there was an intention of it happening, just because it did. The groups that didn't do it had sicker babies or had less babies or were weaker in some form or died out for some reason or through disease or whatever. And the ones that did it well. And so the vast amount of time that we're talking about here and the amount of generations that we're talking about is incredible. It's, it's almost in, impossible to conceive, but you have to remember that's happening over and over and over and over and over again. And even if there was some sense of intentionality to it, it could be lost o over time. And I'll tell a very quick story that, you know, started to get me thinking about there's a famous sort of anthropology story. Nobody knows if it's true or not, but it gets told in classes over and over again that there was an anthropologist studying and living with a family. And I think it was in the uh, Southeast somewhere, you know, maybe Georgia, Carolina, somewhere. And this anthropologist was studying this family and I forget exactly what she was there studying. I think it might've even been genealogy or something, but they kind of gave her a going away party at the end of her months she spent with this family and they served some sort of a roast. And she was there when the, when the woman of the house was preparing the roast. And first thing the woman did was cut off both ends of the roasts and either discarded them or did something else to them and put them in this pan and put it in the oven. And, and the anthropologist said, why did you cut off both ends? Clearly that pot is big. Why did you cut off both ends of that roast? And she, has, she said, I don't, I don't have any idea. It's just the way my mother did it. I'll call her. So she called her mother and her mother said, I have absolutely no idea. I'll ask aunt so-and-so because it was the way our mother did it. And, you know, eventually over three or four people back in time, they figured out that, it, that the reason that it was done that way was because the great grandmother had this small pan and they cut both sides of that roast off just to fit in, in, into that pan or, or, you know, uh, container, whatever, roasting pan. And, it's a great example of whether it's true or not. It's that kind of three generations down, they were still doing something that they had no idea why they were doing it, but it just made sense because it was their mother and you know, so on and so forth. So when we look at things in the past, whether they're different ways of hunting or different ways of cooking or fermenting food or detoxifying vegetables, sometime, you know, hopefully we get into things like nishtamalization in a little bit during this conversation. I don't think it was always an intentional thing. I think it was just something that happened and it stuck and the groups that were doing it are the ones that survived and, and continued certainly to, to pass it down. As far as organ meats and those sorts of things are concerned, we see a huge, you know, meat enters our diets at about 3.4 million years ago. We see 
the, the remains of scavenged animals that have butchering marks from stone tools. So it was humans were our ancestors were butchering these animals that were killed by another predator to get the flesh and, and the meat off of, uh, of these animals. We don't at that time see any major changes in our anatomy. We, it, it didn't help support any major body growth. It didn't help support any major brain growth. But at two, a million and a half years later, two million years ago, we see a massive jump in both body and brain size. And the two things that we believe are happening at two million years ago that were different than anything before that was one, the um, control of fire, which allowed us to cook food, which allowed us to detoxify foods and unlock nutrients in foods and all those sorts of wonderful things, which is great. And hunting technology, which uh, immediately turns us from scavengers eating just the leftover flesh on animals to the predators where we have first access to any part of that animal that we want. And that's a huge game changer because even though meat is more nutrient dense and bioavailable than any plant on the planet, it is the least nutrient dense part of an animal. And it, and it's also, even though it's incredibly bioavailable, it's less bioavailable than liver and spleen and kidney and blood and fat and brains and eyeballs and all of those sorts of things. And what, I and many other people like Miki Bendor and, and other anthropologists believe is that it's the introduction of eating the entire animal that allowed us, about our ancestors, the nutritional, amazing nutrition that they needed to support massive body and brain growth. In fact, and I know this is hard for some people to fathom, but it's because we were eating animals nose to tail that I think we became human the way that we think of ourselves becoming human today, both in body and brain size, but also in culture as well. The evolution of cooking methods kind of mirrors kind of like how we evolve as a species and the strongest survives. It's like with our cooking methods, the best cooking method survives as far as like what sustains the species. It's like parallel evolution. hundred percent. And and this is, and I'd like to, if it's okay, real quick, just to say one, one thing that's uh, you know, at the, at the foundation of everything that I write about in the book, everything that we do here at the food lab and the, the modern Sunday's kitchen, everything, and certainly that I do at home and believe in, is that you know, we are stuck trying to answer this question about what we should be eating. What should we eat? What should we eat? We look at the diet books. We listen to podcasts. We listen to documentaries. We listen to our doctor and the FDA and everybody else. What should we eat? And even though the answer to that question is important, it's not the question we should be asking, or at least not be asking by itself, because humans have one of the least efficient digestive tracts of any animal on the planet. So really the answer to that question is, well, not much. <laughs> we're, 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 we are not, you know, one thing I like to say is we are not omnivores by design. In other words, a greater being, a God, God's natural selection, whatever it is you believe in, however we got to be where we are now, we have not evolved to safely and efficiently consume almost every food in our diet alone, anatomically. We just don't have the right apparatus to do it. What we as humans do is we process food to make it as safe and nourishing as possible before we put it in our bodies. In other words, and again, this is kind of hard to fathom or grasp. We are not designed to eat almost every food that we eat, but we require the nutrition from a whole host of foods that we are not biologically adapted to deal with without some sort of technological innovation. Really, there's two ways that we as humans derive really good nutrition. One is we use animals as sort of 
food factories. We let animals eat foods that they are designed to consume. They biologically have the right digestive tracts to deal with. Allow those animals to turn that into things like blood, fat, meat, organs, you know, that sort of thing. And then we consume that or we replicate through technology the processes, processes that are happening inside of those animals. We directly do that to the raw ingredients before we put those foods into our mouths. And th that's really the two things that we can do because before we started creating these technologies, we ate a very limited amount of plants and some insects. That's it. And our bodies were small and our brains were small and they weren't going to grow at all until we started introducing other foods. And when we started introducing these other technologies, it let us introduce these other foods. It let us to unlock, safely unlock a whole bunch of nutrition. And we really domesticated ourselves and created bodies built on the backs of these technological innovations that we now are in a place where we can no longer fully nourish our bodies without some of these technologies. It's, it's actually fascinating, really. So looking at that evolution, we were, you know, scavenging, eating meat, but it wasn't until like you were talking about our ability to use fire and hunting that we really had that big advancement and were able to, you know, use these other technologies and advance from there. So, okay, this is such a naive question. Were there other species eating meat? How do we get the ability to use fire and hunt and create these technologies? Wouldn't we have had to have had evolved in order to do that? Like, it seems like a catch-22. You know, you are asking the best questions I've heard in a very long time. <laughs> I really, really appreciate them. You have no idea. Only at one other time has somebody even asked a question similar to this. And I was, I was doing a film and a television program in Ireland for a show called What Are You Eating? And... I was with the host and the host asked me something very similar. He said, you know, I don't understand. Like if you, if you just fed a whole bunch of food like this to a chimpanzee, would you get a smarter chimpanzee? And, and I'm like, wow, that's a great question. Uh, no, you just get a, you know, a heavier chimpanzee. <laughs> so what, one way to think about it is this us unlocking incredible nutrition from our environment and putting it into a state that are again, relatively weak bodies can actually make use of did not allow us to grow bigger, you know, did not push us to grow bigger brains and bigger bodies. Didn't do it. Something else was the trigger to, or some other things were, were, were the triggers to push our brains to grow bigger and to push our bodies to grow bigger. It's just that without that nutrition, we wouldn't have been able to support that growth. Right? We would have, you know, I don't care what was going on. We, we could have given birth to an Australopithecine three and a half million years ago that had the potential to be as smart as Albert Einstein, but it would have never happened because the nutrition wasn't there to allow that sort of growth to happen. So there's a couple thoughts. Uh, certainly there's a lot of ideas about what those triggers were to, to initiate and, and to push things like brain growth and body growth. One is hallucinogenic drugs. The, the, the idea that our ancestors might've been dabbling a little bit with mind-altering substances that kept pushing our brains, you know, beyond what their normal capacity or normal range would be and kept pushing and pushing and pushing. I don't know if I believe that or not, but that's one of the theories. Another theory is that, you know, there's, I forget the name, but there, there's a number of the maximum amount of real relationships a person can have. I don't mean romantic relationships. I just mean, in other words, human relationships. In dealing with the, and because forming and maintaining a real relationship with another person 
is incredibly exhausting. I mean, it's taxing. It requires a lot of effort. And when our populations were starting to grow a little bit larger and we had to organize ourselves and deal with ourselves and manage ourselves and, and all of the things that come along with more people in a given space and making it work, that that was one of the things that might, you know, it's a very human thing for us to be around other people and, and to create and, and maintain those relationships, but it requires a massive amount of brain power in order to, to make it happen. And that might have been pushing. It could have been, some people believe it could have been, I, I wish we were on video here and I could show you, but when you make stone tools, you know, the first stone tool technology we ever created, we see it at 3.3 million years ago. I'm sure there's some that are earlier, but that's the oldest we found. And even the, the very basic act of, of knocking two rocks together and creating a sharp edge is a, is a math problem. I mean, it, it, it's, it's thinking in three dimensions and understanding angles and planning ahead, especially when you get to some more of the advanced tools. So the fact that we're manipulating materials from our environments and thinking about things in sort of very planned and in some cases abstract ways can help push our brains to, to limits that it's never had before. And it, whatever, whatever those the trigger or triggers were, we don't know yet, and we may never know. But what I'm convinced is that there was this, something was pushing our brains and our bodies to get larger. And the only way that we were able to support that massive body and brain growth was because of the incredible nutrition that our ancestors introduced into our diet, and most importantly, introduced in a way that our bodies could make use of. Wow. That is fascinating. Okay. Yeah. Cause when you were talking about the evolution, I was writing and I wrote scavengers and then I wrote what here. And then I wrote fire hunting. <laughs> Cause I was like, there's something that happened here that, you know, allowed that to happen. Do you think any of the other current species today on the planet could evolve like us, like could become like we are? That is a, a incredibly good question as well. I haven't, I haven't thought about that. I, I will say we have used if anybody cares, uh, you can Google Kanzi, K-A-N-Z-I on YouTube or whatever. It's a bonobo chimp that has been used for all sorts of wonderful language experiments, but also stone tool experiments. And Kanzi was able to not only be taught to make very simple, basic stone tools, but there, there's, a, there's a pretty famous scene. They, they put and I know this sounds very cliche, but they, they, Kanzi was in some sort of a room and they had this box with a banana in it and a string holding the box closed. And they taught her how to make a very simple stone tool to create a sharp edge, to go cut the string to get to the banana. And this happened over and over again. And then finally she got frustrated with the way that they told her or showed her how to make the tool. And she started just smashing the rocks on the ground and picking up a sharp edge and, you know, making it themselves, which sounds again, very simple and whatever. But the, the cool thing about what happened is she found a new way to make a sharp edge from a rock to go ahead and, and, and cut the string and get at the banana. So I don't know exactly what the triggers were that, that pushed a lot of that sort of brain evolution and even body evolution, but are other animals capable of, of learning in ways that we don't even understand? Absolutely. Certainly, absolutely. In your work as an archaeologist, how much of it is looking at the past to how we got here and how much of it is predictive, like where we will go from here? Is it mostly looking backwards or do you also look forwards? I love archaeology. It's been such a part of my life for so incredibly long has, and has informed so much of what I do now and I'm sure what I'll do for my entire life. 
you can imagine that an archaeologist's job is very, very difficult because they take very limited amounts of information, do everything possible that they can to try to eke out as much information from as they can from a, a piece of a stone or a piece of a clay pot that's thousands of years old, and then try to make interpretations of it. And it is an all-consuming thing to do. So a lot of archaeologists spend their entire careers, not that it's, it's wrong or right, they spend their entire careers looking to the past and trying to interpret what was happening in the past. And I spent a lot of my time doing that as well. But there was this one moment and I talk about this on, on podcasts, so I'll give you the quick version of it. Don't waste, take too much time. But when I think I think we had just given uh, my wife had given birth to our to our son, our, who was two years younger than our oldest daughter, and I was in the kind of archaeology that I do. And you mentioned it earlier, the experimental archaeology, where in addition to field archaeology, we're excavating sites. I'm trained in a number of different primitive technologies. So things like stone tool technology or prehistoric ceramics or ancient fibers, high tanning, those sorts of things. And I, when we find artifacts and don't understand how they were made or how they were used, my job used to be, I would, I would replicate those tools using the same materials and techniques as we think they were used to create them in the first place, understand, to understand how they were made, and then put them through a series of experiments to understand you know, how they might've been used. And I spent a lot of my life learning from amazing people around the world uh, and honing my skills on how, on how to do this. And one of the things that's incredibly difficult to do is, is, is learn how to make stone tools. And I dedicated myself years ago to spending at least an hour every single day practicing. And I'm, I'm a full-grown man every day. I'm in, I'm in the garage and I'm banging on rocks. Oh, oh on and on again. <laughs> and my wife one night had come out. She said, can you... And this isn't exactly how it was. This is years ago, so I forget the specifics. But she came out in a sense. She said, "Can you come inside?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I'll be in just a minute." She goes, "No, no, can you? You got to bring this all this passion, this this you know this desire for knowledge and all, understanding it all. Can you please bring it in the house? You have a family. Like work hours are over. Come inside, and can you do something that's relevant to the family?" And I said, yeah, I mean, first at first I was embarrassed right away because, you know, prior to that, I was patting myself on the back for how hard I was working to dedicate myself to something. And then my wife, the person I love more than, you know, she comes out and she says, hey, can you do something for the family? And I realized that, oh, my gosh, yes, of course. Why do something and be that passionate about something if it's not going to help the people that you love most? So I spent several weeks thinking about it nonstop. It was then, and it was in the shower one morning, that I put two and two together that I realized that almost every single prehistoric technology ever invented over three and a half million years of time, almost every single prehistoric technology has something to do with food. Getting food, processing food, storing food, distributing food, something. And when that moment, it hit me like a, a ton of bricks. I'm like, oh my gosh, like that's the key. If you think about it, Every Albert Einstein, the most brilliant of our species of every generation for millions of years were focused on inventing something that made our food safer and more nourishing. And our diets are built on the backs of those technologies. And then our bodies are built on the backs of those diets that are built on the backs of those technologies. Then understanding that is crucial to understanding the diet that built us as humans and to me, Understanding that is the foundation for understanding the diet that we should be looking towards as we move into the future. And so, you know, to, to, I kind of spent a long time trying to answer your question, but the, the answer is that made me change, sort of do a 180 from just looking to the past to, hey, how can I use this information 
and make it relevant not only today, but also into the future. And what I found, especially, you know, that, that also then kind of pushed us, and luckily we've been able to do this as a family, but pushed us to not just focus on the archaeology, but also the, the cultural anthropology, the ethnographic work we've done with living indigenous groups and traditional groups to understand what they're doing today. And what we found is that not only does this way of approaching food produce, in my mind, the most nourishing food possible for humans that were the ones that were, we diet we really should be eating, but it also fulfills the other parts of our, our dietary needs beyond just the biological, the cultural. The, you know, we really want not just a nourishing food system, biologically nourishing food system, but one that's ethical and sustainable as well. And that's the key to the food system for the future. And this food system of the past is a great model for that as well. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. That is an incredible epiphany. I've sort of thought about it a little bit about just how pervasive food is in our entire existence. I'll think about it with like Instagram, for example, because sometimes I'll be looking at all these food pictures. And if you just step back for a second and think about it, it's like we're looking at pictures of food. Like, I don't know. It's just, it's really interesting to think about how much it makes us human, basically. So I guess going deeper into that and those technologies and how we do deal with and process food, which you talk about all in the book. So one of the fascinating things you talk about is how we basically do to food on the outside, what animals do on the inside. I mean, there's a lot of ways we could take this. What are some of those examples? Like, I love how you talk about how birds eat seeds and and grains and things like that and that whole process. Like for that example, how do birds eat seeds and grains and how do we do it? 
Yeah, I, I picture so many moments of the past in these sort of light bulb moments, and this was one of them. That show I mentioned earlier in Ireland, we were filming right after you know we, they were filming us walking through the woods and talking about feeding chimpanzees. <laughs> that that the, the thing we mentioned earlier. But then we went out into this field. This this TV program actually, this particular episode was about veganism, believe it or not. And what they wanted me on for at the end of the of the program was to talk about what our ancestors, you know, how meat entered the diet, meat and animals entered the diet in the past and what the technologies were like surrounding it and all this. So we were set up at this beautiful spot in the Wicklow Mountains called Powers Court Waterfalls. There's a waterfall in the background, there's this field, and we had gotten several deer, several ducks, and some rabbits. And I had some, I was, I was a visiting professor at University College Dublin, so I had some of my graduate students out there and they were using stone tools and butchering in the foreground while I'm with the host in the back and we're and we're making stone tools and talking about you know, different time periods and things like this. And then he, he said to me, he says, hey, can you get that? Can you pick up one of those ducks and you know, cut it open and pull everything out on the inside? And I'm like, you want me to do that on camera? And he's like, sure. I said, okay. So I picked up one of the ducks and I cut the bottom. And I, had, I reached all the way up, all the way up like into his neck from the bottom and pulled everything out. And it was laying out on my arm. And you have to remember... I'm mic'd and there's a boom pole and there's students with these razor sharp tools in their hand and the camera, and all this stuff's happening at the same time. And I'm trying not to sound stupid and I'm worried about all this stuff. And I had this epiphany looking at these organs on my arm and I just wanted to scream like, oh my gosh, but it wasn't about this. This, this episode was about vegans. It wasn't about veganism. It wasn't about brains. So I had to hold it in. And then I screamed as soon as we got, as soon as we cut. But this is what I saw. And let me just say one other thing before I tell you what I saw. The day before this, I was up in the northwest of Ireland in a beautiful village called Belderig, and it was an area where they believe you know, butter was, might have been first invented, but we were doing a program with people, and we, we had something called, a, we were grinding grains, and we were using something called a cornstone, and a cornstone are these two round rocks that sit on top of one another, and you spin the top rock, and you feed the grains into the middle, and it, and it, and it, and it grinds it, so just keep that in mind for a minute, and so... That happened the day before. So I'm, I, I reached up inside of this duck and I pulled everything out and it's literally laying on my forearm. And I realized that the duck has a lot of things in its digestive tract that humans don't have. And they're designed specifically to process grains. So when a duck or other granivorous bird, a bird designed to eat grains, consumes grains. Now, remember, the first thing is they're, they're, they're not chopping them up. They're, not, they're taking a raw grain right off of the stalk or right off of the ground, and they're swallowing it. A huge, uh, a whole raw grain covered in lectins, phytic acid, anti-nutrients, all the things that we know grains have, and they swallow it. And the first thing that, the first place that it goes in their digestive tract is a crop or a crop-like part of their body, depending on the bird that they are. And what this is, is just a, an enlarged sort of pouch in their esophagus where the grains sit. Now, the grains will sit there for sometimes up to 14 to 16 hours in a warm, moist, dark environment. And during that time, a lot of things are happening. It's not just sitting there. They're uh, absorbing water, they're swelling up, and they're soaking, they're fermenting, and sometimes, depending on the grain, how fresh it is, the length of time, and, and about all this, sometimes they're even sprouting. And anybody who's listening that knows all the great ways to deal with grains before we eat them, soaking, fermenting, and sprouting are incredibly important. So these soaked, fermented, sometimes sprouted grains, after they leave the crop, then go down into an organ called 
the gizzard. And if any, anybody who's butchered a chicken or taken apart a turkey for Thanksgiving dinner, that they, they know what the gizzard looks like. And the gizzard are two incredibly strong muscular discs that sit against one another. And the birds, they eat rocks. They're called gastroliths, little, little tiny rocks, gravel that they consume on purpose that sits between these muscular discs. And these softened, detoxified grains go in between these discs and they literally get stone ground. And what, what I saw in that was that gizzard was exactly what that cornstone was I was using the day before in County Mayo up in Bilderig. So these, these grains are detoxified, they're softened, they go down into a gizzard, they're stone ground, and then and only then do, do the grains go into the rest of their digestive tract, which operates in a very similar way to ours at that point. So I'm, I'm looking at it and thinking, oh my gosh, other than baking, actually heating the, the grains, these birds are making sourdough bread inside of their bodies. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. So that really kicked off a lot of my, my thoughts about detoxifying grains and thinking about sourdough bread and all that sort of thing. But at the moment, I also had this thought, so I wonder if, and I'm looking at their digestive tract, I wonder if we took a grain and bypassed those two, the crop and the gizzard, and stuck that grain you know, into their digestive tract a little bit lower, what it would do? Because that's essentially what we're doing when we're eating grains that are right. What would it do? And I said, oh, I'll never know. I'll never have, I'll never, that's, that's a question I'll never get answered. Well, about three or four years ago, it did get answered. I came upon a disease, a malnourishment issue that ducks and geese get that live in city parks that get fed by really nice old people that are sitting on the bench and, and feeding them bread. They get a disease called angel wing disease. It's, it's, because, it's because they're malnourished and not getting the nourishment that they need. And here are these, just think about how crazy this is. Here are these birds, granivorous birds that are designed to eat grains, that are getting fed grains in the form of bread from nice old people sitting on a park bench, and they're getting sick, and they're getting deformed because of, of the malnourishment in this. And what, what's happening is that the grains that are in that bread, this regular sliced pan, loaf, you know, Wonder Bread kind of baked bread, that hasn't been through that, they can't go through that process, right? Even though the, it goes into the crop and the gizzard, it doesn't go, get done what needs to be done because it's already been processed, it's already been cooked, and they're getting sick. And that's exactly what is happening to humans when, I mean, simplify it, but when we're eating bread that hasn't been processed the right way. But the good news is we can replicate what happens inside of those birds outside of our bodies. When we make real traditional, wild, slow fermented sourdough bread, it is a completely different food than even the most high quality, yeasted, all grain, you know, whatever kind of bread. So out of all the potential plants we could eat, for example, presumably some of the anti-nutrients create a very obvious barrier. Like we can't walk up and just eat a piece of grain in a field because it wouldn't taste good and we would feel like we can't eat it. But then there are other things like nuts, for example, that we can very easily, seemingly, eat a nut, but it has things like oxalates and, you know, more silent and sinister, perhaps, anti-nutrients. So how obvious are these different plant toxins? And how have we known as a species what techniques need to be applied to different things? So the intuitive part is very, it's sort of a charged statement because a lot of it has to do with what our upbringing was and what our association with our food is and, and, and those sorts of things. So I, I believe the only time in our life where we can truly intuitively eat 
is when we're sitting in a high chair right after we got weaned off of our mother's milk. And unfortunately, what happens in that high chair is that young parents, just like my wife and I, are told what we should be giving our kids. And, you know, it's so crazy because you have these animals that are intuitively eating and are starving, and are hungry and they're crying. And we have to force food into their bodies. You know, the cream spinach that they're spitting up at us and, and the sweet potatoes that they're spitting back at us. And we're, we're taught to just keep shoving it in their mouth and they could try it five more times and they're going to like it then. And, you know, whatever. Other animals don't do this. <laughs> Other animals don't have to force their young to eat because they're eating the foods they, they should be eating. So uh, the other, unfortunate result of that weird situation that, that we do is we teach our young to not trust their senses and to eat the foods that other people are telling them they should be eating. And this is one of the things that is really focus of, of what I'm working on right now. It's what does intuitive eating really look like and what are the questions we should be asking? So you ask an incredibly great question, first off. All plants, all plants have toxins. All of them have toxins. Some of these toxins are not anything to really worry too much about. Some of them will kill us outright, but most of them sit in this sort of gray area where in a large enough dose or after years and years and years of eating these toxins and consuming them, they can build up and cause issues. You know, there's a lots, of, lots of different variations of what they are, but all plants have toxins in them. And this doesn't mean that I think we shouldn't be eating plants. In fact, our family eats a lot of different plants. What I believe we need to do is look at plants the way we look at everything else, in our, or we should be looking at everything else in our diet, with respect, with caution, with thought, with, with planning and say, okay, which of these should I eat? Which of these shouldn't I eat? And which ones do I need to do something to, to eat them properly and eat them without getting sick in order to get the right nutrition from them. And plants are a really hard one. Now there are certainly some plants. I, I've, I've been teaching foraging classes now for almost, wow, almost 30 something years. And I used to start off the class, everybody was so worried about wild plants and so scared. And I'd start off by saying, hey, there's no reason to be scared. Just sort of respect the plants and know what ones you're getting and this and that. And I don't know if you noticed, but the first line of my plants chapter was plants should scare the hell out of you. And they should. One of the, I, I, plants fit into this, for many people, section of our, of our brain when we think about diet that we say, oh, plants are good for us. Like, we don't even have to think about them. Right? We just some of them are good, more of them is better. If I want to get healthy, I just load up my don't I, I don't have to think about them. I'll start thinking about other things that are important and the plants I'll just eat without any thought. And that's exactly the wrong way to think about them. So some plants will you know, the toxins that plants have are not by mistake. They're through evolutionary design through time to, to figure out how these plants that don't move that they can protect themselves and do do the same thing that all other organisms have to do, reproduce viable offspring. That's, that's what they have to do to, to survive. So it takes energy. It takes work to produce these toxins. So they're not there by mistake and they have to serve a function or they almost always serve a function. And it doesn't usually make sense for a plant to produce a toxin in it that doesn't alert the predator <laughs> that the toxin's there because then it didn't do its work, right? The plant's dead and then the other thing's dead too and then they're both dead and it doesn't make sense. So it's not always this case, but in many cases there is something that alerts a potential invader or predator 
that there's something wrong and it could be a flavor. It could be an itching. It could be a reaction. It could be a rash. It could be a pain. It could be, could be a lot of things, but it's not always the case and it's not always intuitive. And the good news is there are a lot of different ways to detoxify plants. One of the first things I think we should do is, you know, we've created some of the issues around, plants are so complicated. I know I'm jumping around. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I love it. <laughs> plants are so problematic if we, don't, if we don't think about them the right way. We have to think about them the right way. But we also, some of the problems surrounding plants are problems that we've created. And a lot of it has to do with things like overconsumption. We, we take plants and label some of them superfoods, plants that don't deserve it, like spinach, and label them superfoods. And as soon as they get a label like a superfood, we fall into that same trap where we think some is good, more is better. Oh my gosh, if spinach is good for me and I can eat it two weeks every year, but now I can ship it in from over here and I can freeze it and have it over. I can have it every day. And oh my gosh, if some's good, more is better. I'm going to be super healthy by eating spinach. I'll have a spinach shake in the morning and then I'll have spinach with my lean chicken breast at night and I'm going to be great. And that, that's terrible. We created that problem. Number one, by labeling something a superfood, which is a terrible label. And the second thing is by offering and providing food to a consumer 365 days out of the year when it was never available like that in the past. I don't, I have a huge oxalate problem. I refuse to eat spinach, but for somebody that doesn't have such a big oxalate problem, like I do eating spinach for the two or three weeks out of the year that it would grow where you live is not a big deal. Eating spinach every single day creates a huge problem. So Number one, we can, we can overcome a lot of the issues we have with plants by truly eating seasonally, period. That, that, that'll help a lot. Certain plants, we need to understand. The, the two issues with plants are, number one, is they all have some sort of toxin in them. And number two, even if their label reads that it has certain nutrition in it, that doesn't mean that nutrition is in a state that our bodies can actually do something with it or, or, or absorb the nutrients. So plants, in my mind, need to be detoxified and they need to be made as bioavailable as possible. Sometimes simple cooking can do it. But for some plants, you know, they require things like fermentation or nishtamalization or a whole a, a drying or a whole host of different things in order to make them as as safe and nourishing as possible. And again, to get back to your original question, is some of this intuitive? Yeah. I mean, there are certain plants that I've put in my mouth that I knew immediately I shouldn't be eating. But there's a whole bunch, again, like spinach, especially when you're getting the, uh, the media and, and everybody else saying that these plants are incredibly good for you. And, you know, you're eating it, you don't really feel an effect right away. And it's, it's not till months or years later that you realize that there's some huge issue. And it's the problem is it's so incredibly difficult to connect the dots. It's like, you know, I've been eating this for all my life. Why do I think that's causing the problem? Well, it's because you've been eating it your entire life. I don't know how much you want to talk about oxalates, but I will say this. Most of the plant toxins, most of the toxins that plants produce or have can be dealt with or mitigated through different kinds of, of processing. Fermentation is a great one. But the one toxin that I have not been able to find a real way to deal with yet is, is oxalates. There's some suggestions fermentation can help. There's a lot of, you know, people are talking about cooking oxalates, you know, high oxalate containing foods with dairy and, you know, sometimes magnesium supplements can help and those sorts of things. But 
that's one that I think that the high oxalate plants, you just need to stay away from or eat in, 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 big, in moderation. For listeners, if they'd like to learn more about oxalates, I did an interview with Sally Norton all about them. And they were scary for me to learn more about because like you said, there doesn't seem to be any mitigation strategies for them. And then they're so pervasive in so many foods that we are very common, you know, like spinach and almonds. And so it's probably a very big deal. Another question actually about the intuition. This question haunts me and has haunted me for so long. So I, okay, I don't eat, (laughs) I don't eat anywhere near like you talk about in your book, but I do eat, although that is goals there, but I do eat very natural and I don't eat processed food. And I found that the more I go towards that, the more I have craved foods that when I was eating a processed diet, I would never even want to touch. But now pretty much everything appeals to me, everything that is considered normal food by some sort of standard. And so where I'm going with this is liver, for example. Liver seems to be something that most people, and it's like natural state. So if it's not done up in some sort of processed form or really cooked, like people seem to not like liver just to make a sort of general statement. It's accurate. Okay. Okay. And so, but the question for me is, I I don't understand why if it's so nutrient dense. And then I even went through a period where I got very anemic, like severely anemic. I had to be in the hospital for it. And I got out of the hospital and I was like, I'm sure that I'm going to love liver. Cause I, I hadn't actually tried liver. I just knew people didn't really like it. And I was like, I'm sure I will love it now because I need iron. It's so nutrient dense. There's no reason I shouldn't like it. And I cooked it and I plain and I just, I didn't like it. And so I've thought about that for so long. Like, why? Is that completely my psychology surrounding it? Like why, why for something like organ meats and liver in particular, do do we not like them if they're so nutrient dense? (laughs) Again, another great question. So I, I think it's a combination of things. I didn't grow up on liver. I didn't grow up on liver because and my, my dad will tell you flat out, his parents every Sunday cooked liver and onions. And they it, it was leather by the time he ate it. And it was terrible. He hated it. His mother overcooked it. She's a, she was a great cook otherwise, but liver, she <laughs> did never work. He hated it. He didn't feed it to me. And, and in fact, my father brought me up hunting in my entire life. And, and liver, the heart, the kidney, those organs for, for as respectful and as amazing as our hunting was, you know, approach to, to animals and, and all of that, that was never considered food. And it was never considered food to him because of his upbringing. And I did right. And I, I actually remember the moment that I, that I really started to look at the entire animal as, as, as a source of food. And it wasn't until years later. Now I wasn't, I didn't grow up on it. And I just like you started eating liver because I, through everything that I was taught, started to believe that this was an incredible source of food and nutrients. And I really enjoyed the fact that that nose to tail approach really makes sense from an ethical sustainability standpoint as well. But I wasn't a huge fan either. It it had a weird taste, but that term weird or that mindset is a very cultural thing because it's weird because what's been normalized in our diets are completely different flavors and textures really. So when we started doing work with other groups around the world, I was floored because anytime they had access to liver, they relished it. 
I mean, relished it. When we started filming The Great Human Race, one of the first nights we were out sort of in the bush, we hadn't started filming yet, but we were living with the Hadza, the oldest hunter-gatherer group in the world. And we were just sitting by a fire one night, and you know, one of the guys there said, through a translator said, you know, they, they needed to go get water for us. It was like 11 o'clock at night. We're in the middle of nowhere in Africa. We were like 30, 40 miles from the nearest town. And that's sort of a stretch for calling it a town. So we're in the middle of the woods. None of us knew what we were doing. And the four kids really that were sort of keeping us safe said they were going to get some water. And they pointed to one of our headlamps and they'd never seen one before. So we let them borrow the headlamp and they took off. And they said they'd be back in about 45 minutes. Well, three hours later, we're scared to death. We're, we're listening to the hyenas. It's pitch black out. It's terrible. They came back and they were so happy. Ear to ear grins. They had, they had shot, I think it was the first time they ever hunted at night because they had this headlamp. And they shot this genet cat out of a tree with their bow. And they brought it. They laid it down. And they said, listen, we eat the organs first. We're going to save the meat to share with everybody tomorrow. But we're going to eat the organs right now. And I mean, every, every bit of those organs got consumed and it wasn't like this was this survival food. They were so excited to have it. And I think they, that situation is a better sort of indicator of intuition than you or me who was brought up in the modern Western dietary world with all the other influences of, of, of changing what a real diet is to one that's controlled by advertising and media and, and multinational food corporations. So I, I, I like to say that I sort of alluded to it earlier about that how and, and, and what question. We, we're asking this question, what we should be eating. And, and for the most part, a lot of our conversation today was really focused on what we should eat. And even though that is an important question, we are the only animal on the planet that asks it. And all the other wild animals figure it out on their own very, very well. And they just do it intuitively like you're talking about. But the difference is they're eating diets that they're anatomically designed to eat. Carnivorous birds are eating grains. You know, cows are eating really tough vegetable materials. Carnivores are eating other animals. And they're biologically designed to do this, and they figure it out on their own. But here we are as humans in this really weird situation where over three and a half million years of technological innovation – we have out-eaten our digestive tracts and evolved to the point on the backs of those diets where not only – it's not a question just about what, but it's a question about how. How do we have to process these foods in order to eat them? And I, I kind of – I cut it short earlier. I'm sorry. But you know, when that sort of question thing, we ask what and what is almost irrelevant without the how. So if, if, if you say – you know, we talked about grains earlier. If you say should – the two questions that I always get are, should humans eat grains and should humans consume dairy as adults? I mean, no matter where I'm speaking, no matter who I'm talking to, at some point, those two questions come out. That's what everybody wants to know. And those questions are unanswerable if all I'm doing is focusing on the what. Because somebody could be thinking Wonder Bread and somebody else could be thinking you know, long fermented sourdough bread, or somebody could be thinking ultra pasteurized skim milk, and somebody else could be thinking about some sort of high quality raw fermented dairy completely different foods. So I think if we are in tune with, I'm convinced, I don't even think, I'm convinced that if we are in tune with our bodies, I mean, truly in tune with our bodies, and when we eat food, we really understand how it makes us feel minutes later, hours later, days later, 
and we're faced, you know, we're confronted with real genuine food, then we don't even have to ask that how, I'm sorry, that, that what question anymore. We can figure that out on our own. When we start eating, how much to eat, what we eat, when we stop eating, I, I'm convinced that we can, we like every other animal on the planet, wild animal, can, can figure out. The question I think we need to focus on, the question I think we need to spend a lot more time on is the how. How do we eat grains? How do we eat dairy? How do we eat animals? How do we eat all of these food? How do we eat vegetables? What do we need to do to these raw materials that we literally have absolutely no biological business consuming? How do we take them, make them as safe and nourishing as possible before we consume them? And then that, you know, when we start to answer those questions, then we're going to start to get at a diet that is one that's not only nourishing, but is ethical and sustainable, and is one that can serve us well into the future. Hi, friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality, they're low EMF, and what I really love is they have a solo unit, that's what I have, and it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving, it's just really an amazing investment, and they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon, or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you, and like I said, that will be up to $200 off, and that will also get you you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase a sauna, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What, When, Why. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. So a question about that how method. Does the starting substrate matter? And the reason I'm asking that, so for example, I recently, before reading your book, I went on a um, cottage cheese making obsession and I got really obsessed with making cottage cheese. But I was making it from pasteurized milk and vinegar and not the way, not the way I learned reading in your book. So something like that, with these how methods, are there only a few like real ways of doing them? What about these gray zones where I'm making like cottage cheese from pasteurized milk or, you know, people might buy fermented foods that are pasteurized. Like how intense does it need to be? So... Seriously, let me thank you for several things. One is for asking such incredible questions. And number two, giving me and anybody else you interview so much time to really dive deep enough to answer the questions because these are really good questions that require that require the right amount of time to answer. So I, I love, love talking about dairy because it really exemplifies a lot of the things that I find important. To answer that, let me just very quickly go through what happens when we infant mammals consume dairy from our mothers, because it, it, it's exactly, it's very relevant to, to, to the answer. So number one, humans are mammals, and all mammals are designed in, to consume dairy from our mothers at birth when we're infants. And in fact, I believe it's the only food that humans are perfectly designed to consume, and that's just for a short period of our life that we're designed to consume it. 
So in most cases, when you're asked, when I try to answer that question, how about other foods, we're looking at other animals as a model and what happens inside of other animals' digestive tracts as a model for what we should be doing outside of our bodies before we consume it. But dairy is different. The only, what we need to do as adults is look at ourselves when we were infants and what we internally did to dairy when we digested it. So what happens when we were infants and all, what all, for all mammals is you know, we drank directly from our mothers. The milk that came out of our mothers was number one at body temperature, and that's important. And it's teeming with live bacteria. In fact, the milk is coming out of our mothers already in the process of fermentation. And it, we consume it. It goes into our digestive tracts, and we, when we were infants, produced a number of different enzymes that helped us deal with that milk as safely and efficiently as possible. Number one, we have an enzyme called lipase, which helps break down the lipids or the fats. We have an enzyme called lactase that we produce that helps us break down the sugars, lactose, and milk. And we also, depending on the mammal, produce an, a chymosin or chymosin-like enzyme which de de deals with the proteins and actually coagulates the milk and turns it into sort of a, a semi-solid. And the reason that happens is because when we're infants, all we're doing is drinking milk, just drinking liquids, and there's nothing to slow that liquid down in our digestive tracts. And we need to slow it down to break it down fully and also for it to sit in our small intestines when it once it's been broken down it, for the right amount of time so that our, the nutrients that are in the right state can get absorbed and they can go where they need to be in our bodies. So th this is why it gets somewhat, somewhat coagulated. What we do is we essentially make cheese in our, in our stomachs. And if you look, and I like to say, if you're, if you're, you know, you have a baby on your shoulder and you're, you're patting its back and burping it and it spits up on your shoulder and it looks like cottage cheese and it smells like provolone, that's because it's exactly what it is. We, we made cheese. Now, when we, get weaned off of our mothers, and this is mammals in general, we slow down or stop the production of a lot of those enzymes. We don't need them any longer. And it's not weird. You know, I, I know for growing up, if, if I heard of somebody that was lactose intolerant, I'd be like, oh, that's sort of an outlier. That's sort of this weird thing. Most people can consume dairy as adults. Well, that's not the case. It is exactly the opposite. It is the standard for mammals to become lactose intolerant after they get weaned off their mothers. It is weird that some humans continue to produce lactase, the enzyme that breaks down the lactose, into adulthood, or they call it lactose persistence. And that is because of several different populations that had independent genetic mutations in areas where there was a strong reliance on dairy in the diet for thousands and thousands of years, some places in Africa and some places in, in Europe. So here we are as humans with no longer having the ability to deal with the dairy the same way. And here we are trying to consume dairy. What do we do? Well, we can replicate the process that happened when we were infants. And we do that by using, number one, by fermenting the dairy. And we can ferment the dairy into a number of different things like kefir or yogurt or clabber or cheese, right? does a whole bunch of wonderful things. But the other thing we can do, we don't have to do this because as adults, most of us are eating solid food, so we don't have to worry about that slowing down piece. But the crazy thing is that that chymosin enzyme that coagulates the milk in the cheese-making world is known as rennet, and that's what makes curds and whey. So real traditional cheeses, 
real yogurt, real kefir, real clabber, real genuine, all of those things, fermented cream, all of those are technological replications outside of our body of what we did as infants. And that's the way to make the dairy as safe and nourishing as possible. The other cool thing about fermenting dairy is the bacteria responsible for the fermentation, the lactobacillus bacteria, eat the lactose and do a, a couple of wonderful things for us as we're trying to save to consume the dairy. Number one, when they eat the lactose, the lactose amount drops. So those of us who are lactose intolerant or have difficulties digesting lactose do much better on fermented dairy because the lactose is very, very low or in some cases completely gone. So if you take yogurt, typically yogurt's fermented for 10 to 12 hours, but if you ferment yogurt for 24 hours, there is no lactose left whatsoever. The lactobacillus bacteria have eaten all the lactose and there's no lactose left. The other thing that it does is when it eats the lactose, it pr produces a number of wonderful chemical and physical changes that increase flavor and increase nutrition and increase the aroma and the entire experience of eating it. But it also produces lactic acid, which drops the pH. And that's a great safety mechanism. When, we, when the pH is lowered, it creates a hostile environment for bad pathogens. So it actually creates a safer food at the same time. So now back to your, your cottage cheese and, and a couple other cheeses. The production of the cottage cheese, the way that you did it, relied on adding something that was vinegary, right? You dropped the pH because you added either lactic acid or citric acid or acetic acid. Now, that drops the pH and it allows for a change to happen for it to coagulate, make the kind of curd you want in the cottage cheese. Unfortunately, it didn't go through the fermentation process in order to, to do it. So it, you didn't get all the health benefits from that that you could have if you went through the fermentation. So let me give you a, a really cool, and this is a great takeaway example for people, even if they don't wanna make cheese, but they wanna shop for a better kind of cheese. There's a family of cheeses called pasta filata cheeses, and that's uh, the stretched curd cheeses like mozzarella and provolone and cacio cavallo in Italy and quesillo or Oaxacan string cheese in Mexico, or uh, there's a lot of different types around the world. But when you make that cheese, you start with milk and milk, has a pH of about 6.8 or so when it comes out, let's say a cow, we'll start with cow's milk. If you start the ferment, so you use the rennet or you coagulate the milk to get, make the curds and whey and you kickstart the fermentation process in a number of different ways. So as the, that, that curd is fermenting, it's producing, it's eating the lactose, producing lactic acid and that pH is dropping. In other words, it's, it's becoming more acidic. And as the, the acid builds up, the pH is dropping. When you get to a pH of around 5.2 to 5, right in that range, and heat those curds up, you can stretch them. And that's how you stretch them to make the mozzarella or stretch them to make the provolone. It takes, depending on a number of different factors, around 8 to 10 hours to go from milk through that fermentation process to get to the point where you've reached that ideal pH and can stretch that cheese. That entire time, the milk has been fermenting. It's replicating those biological processes that was going on in our stomachs. It's becoming healthier. It's getting broken down. And the lactose content is, is dropping, right? Because the bacteria is producing lactic acid and it's eating the lactose. And that lactose level is dropping. If you Google how to make mozzarella cheese, they have probably nine out of 10 recipes will give a 30-minute mozzarella recipe. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to try it. <laughs> okay. 
don't try it because what it does is instead of allowing that fermentation, that essential fermentation process to happen over that eight to 10 hours with all those wonderful, amazing changes, you're dropping the pH instantly by adding something acidic. So you're going from a pH of 6.8 to a pH of say five, literally in less than a second because you added something acidic to it. You didn't put it through the process. The final product looks like mozzarella cheese, tastes kind of like mozzarella. It's not as good, but it tastes kind of like mozzarella cheese. And when you eat it, if you're, there's a lot of differences between the two, but if you're lactose intolerant, you'll definitely know the difference because the real cheese, (laughs) the real traditional made one has very, very little lactose in it because it's all been eaten up by the, by the bacteria. But the other one, you might as well drink a glass of milk because it's all still in there. None of it has been fermented out. None of those essential changes have happened. It's the same, it's the same sort of thing with, with, with that cottage cheese. It's, it looks like it, it's, it's almost the same thing as the difference between a long tra- traditional fermented sourdough bread and eating a loaf of Wonder Bread. They're both bread. They both look like bread. They both taste kind of similar, but they're definitely completely different foods. So the takeaway for people are that if you're not, I highly suggest, and I I mean this, people think I'm nuts, but if you want to know about your food and you want to start to get at the how of your food, I don't care how good of a cook you are, take the foods that you eat every single day, the stuff that you feed yourself and your family multiple times a week, the food that makes the main part of your diet and learn to cook it entirely from scratch entirely from scratch. And I know it's for some of you like, oh my gosh, I just have trouble boiling water and putting pasta in it. Look, it's not that hard. Real food, if you can't make it in your kitchen, then you sh- probably should should question whether or not you should be putting it in your mouth. You don't have to make all the food yourself. What I'm suggesting is try it. Do it from scratch at least once. And even if you don't eat it, even if your family won't eat it, even if your dog won't eat it, you will know more about that food and how it's made than in any other way that you can get that education. It's better than a book. It's better than a podcast. It's better than a, better than a documentary. It's better than any of those things. Definitely better than a cooking show. And the cool thing is you can go into the grocery store, literally a completely different person, an informed consumer where the, the marketing and the labeling and the advertising mean absolutely nothing. And you can actually see food for what it is. And you can buy the food that you believe in and use your money to support the food producers that are actually doing it right. So with that said, that quick little thing about cheese, next time you go into the grocery store, look at the mozzarella cheese. And I don't, don't even worry about the polio, like in the block kind of thing that you would shred for pizza. I mean, go directly to Whole Foods or go directly to a cheese shop and look at the really nice mozzarella. You know, those of us who don't know how to make cheese use other things other filters to try to understand which cheese we should buy. Some of its price, some of its you know, reputation, some of its brand, some of its, is, is the mozzarella sitting in, in, its, in liquid and it actually looks like a ball, like somebody in Italy made it. Does it have a, a picture of an Italian flag on the cover or something in Italian? Like those, are the, those are the things that we use. Go to that cheese. Go to the most expensive mozzarella and turn it over and look on the back. If it says citric acid, lactic acid, or acetic acid, which is vinegar, on the back, Turn it over and put it right back on the shelf. It is not real cheese. It is not. It is fake cheese. Go, believe it or not, go, if that's, if that's your choice, go to the aisle in the grocery store where they have the butter and they have the yogurt and go to the string cheese that you buy your kids for lunch. Believe it or not, you can quite often find more real mozzarella cheese in the cheese stick section than you can in the high-end mozzarella section.
And for listeners, if you get the book, definitely get the book. But for all of these things, you list out, you know, the order of if you are shopping, like best to worst, what options to buy. So it's a really valuable resource. Quick question about the rennet. I was like, I'm going to make mozzarella. Granted, it was the fast mozzarella. (laughs) Does it matter if it's because they have like vegan versions and then they have animal, I guess, microbial or they all microbial? No, they have. uh, So the rennet for everybody listening is the enzyme that coagulates the milk and turns it into curds and whey. And for most cheeses, it's essential to have some form of rennet for, for this to happen. Rennet can come in a couple different forms. It, it, typically, it comes in either veal calf rennet. So the rennet that comes from animals comes from the stomachs of unweaned animals. Remember, when you wean the animal, they stop, just like with humans, they stop producing that, you know, that enzyme. So it comes from the stomachs of unweaned animals. There are some plants that will produce that same kind of reaction. And there's also what they call microbial or vegetarian rennet, which is made in the lab to produce the same reaction. They all do essentially the same thing. The most important part of the, of the processing of dairy to me is the fermentation part. You know, that part shouldn't be skipped. And I don't care whether you're making yogurt or kefir or cheese, that fermentation converts that dairy into something that is a lot safer and more nourishing for the human body than just that glass of milk. But when we're talking about food and food choices and, uh, you know, all nourishing ourselves, like we talked earlier, was, is more than just meeting or exceeding our biological needs, but also our cultural needs and our ethical needs and, you know, all those sorts of things. And here's the answer that I'm going to give you is not my answer, although I agree with it. It's uh, David Asher, who's an incredible traditional cheesemaker who I worked with in Iceland several years ago. I asked him that same question and he said, look, They'll do the same thing, but he refuses to use anything but animal rennet because if you're using the other, it's sort of masking, it's, it, it's disguising what's really happening in the dairy industry and making and giving people a false sense of, oh, no animals were harmed in the making of this product sort of thing. This is what happens in the dairy industry. You know, you have, you have baby cows or baby whatever animals you're going to milk and the baby girl cows produce milk and they're what you're looking for. And the baby boy cows are a liability, right? You don't want to feed those cows because you're saving the milk for making the cheese and, or selling the milk or whatever. So the baby boy cows are typically killed for meat and the girl cows are raised for producing milk and making cheese and yogurt, whatever else. So if you are not, and it's those baby boy cows. That veal. Yes. Now, I don't mean veal, like milk-fed veal in a crate sort of thing from the 70s. I mean just the fact that it's a boy cow and it was a baby, large baby, but the, and the baby was killed for meat. It's, it's those unweaned stomachs that the rennet is made from. That, that, that situation works very well. I mean, a, a small dairy farm where you're making your own cheese to feed your family and doing, right? I'm not talking about the you know, huge dairy industry, but the a, a, a dairy system where you're keeping cows for milk and making cheese and butter and those sorts of things and you're producing and they're having babies and you're taking the boys and using them for meat and taking the girls and using them for milk but you're also taking the meat from the the boy cows and then you're taking the rennet from the stomachs and you're making the cheese the system looks you know works really 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 well when you're coming at it from a vegetarian perspective and oh my gosh the dairy industry is so terrible and i'm not going to use the 
the animal rennet because I don't want any boy cows to be killed. I'm only going to use the microbial rennet that's made in the lab because that means no boy cows were killed and I'm going to get my milk. Well, the boy cows are still getting killed. <laughs> They're getting killed just from getting your milk. And the reason he, you know, he, he's very much, I, I love his approach. It's very much, hey, you should know about your food and what your choice, you can have whatever choices you want about food, but you should be informed enough to really be able to make those informed choices. So we only use animal rennet for, for the same reason. And I really think it's a, a great pr- approach. One last question about all the dairy stuff. You're talking about the persistent genes for us to have lactase and digest the lactose. How many generations does that last? So like here in the U.S. where people come from mixed ancestry, are there people who have ancestral genes for that lactase now? Or is it really just in the current populations where they're eating that dairy-rich diet? No, so... Oh gosh, you man, you have some great questions. The it, it is their, their ancestral genes that can, depending on you know who marries who from what different populations, the, those you know, a lot of that can change. But typically, what you see is people from European descent, or especially places like Ireland. Ireland is, is a great example. Ireland has almost one hundred percent lactose tolerance in what you would consider, it's hard to define, but what you would consider a traditional Irish population, almost 100% lactose persistence in, in adults, which really speaks to the rich traditions they've had surrounding dairy for a very long period of time. On the other hand, Native American populations have almost 100% lactose intolerance. They never relied upon dairy in their diets you know, after, after being infants. So Things can change if you have somebody from Ireland marry a Cherokee, you know, the, the, but, but for the most, they're very, very traditional. Here's another quick little sort of fun fact. Mongolia is sort of an outlier. Mongolia has a very high lactose intolerance. In other words, most, a, a large percentage of adults in Mongolia do not produce the enzyme lactase that breaks down the sugar's lactose, so they're lactose intolerant. However, they have a very rich tradition and still now current diet focused on dairy. You know, and how do they do it? And there was a huge study done on this several years ago, and I love it. It's a great example. Almost all the dairy in their diet is fermented and, and has been. So the fact that they, they never needed to have that evolutionary genetic mutation to for lactose persistence because they were eating tons of dairy, but it didn't have any lactose in it because it was, or very little lactose because it was all fermented before they consumed it. Wow. That makes sense. That makes sense. Another process that you talked about, a how process, and you mentioned it already in the show and you talk about it all in the book, but that's, I'm not going to say it right. Nix, what is it? Nixtamalization. You know, it's a new, it's an Aztec word, so it's very, very hard to pronounce. It's nishtamalization. Nishtamalization. Okay. So that's a fascinating story about corn and pellagra and our discovery of what was happening with the corn and disease and how we address that with niacin. And none of that's going to make any sense until maybe you can tell listeners a little bit about what happened with that. Sure. And I I love using these. Maize is a a great, maize or corn is a great sort of poster child for for this. And and the, and the, the value of food, proper food processing. So 
when I say maize, for anybody listening, I mean corn the way you're thinking about corn in this country. Corn is, a, is an old world term that actually just means grain and the dominant grain in an area. So if you were in Ireland and said corn, you'd mean oats. Like what is most, what kind of grain is most of the population eating? And that's what corn meant. So when early explorers came to the Americas armed with this word and they saw the dominant grain in the Americas being used by the Native Americans was maize, they just called it corn. Oh, that's their corn, right? It's their grain. And it just kind of stuck here. So when we think corn, we think maize. So I, and I'm and I'm also not talking about corn on the cob that you eat at a picnic. You know that that is a an unripe. It's a slightly different variety, but it's also an unripe version of corn. What I'm talking about when I say maize or corn is dent corn or feed corn, the kind of corn you would grind up and make cornmeal out of, so you can make cornbread. That kind of corn, or the corn you would make grits out of. That kind of hard corn. So the story about corn, it's, it's a fascinating story. The corn was first domesticated a very long time ago. In fact, it's in the running for being one of the earliest domesticated plants in the world. We know it's over 7,000 years old. There's some archaeologists that believe it's eight or nine or 10,000 years old. Some crazy ones like me that think it's even potentially even older than that. But it's very, very old, very ancient. Corn or maize is very weird. I mean, it literally is a grass. And the wild ancestor to modern day maize or corn is something called teosente, which is just a grass. In fact, if you let your yard grow and not mow it, and it you know, got about two feet tall and a seed head popped up on the top of it, that's about what the teosente looks like. It doesn't look like anything anybody would spend a lot of time dealing with or messing with, but they did. And over numerous genetic mutations, we end up with the kind of corn we have today. Now, corn or maize is incredibly easy to grow, and it grows grows very easily. It, it's very filling. It tastes really good. So it literally has taken over the world. It is the most widely grown grain in the entire world and is the mainstay of and has been for a very long time of many different diets. Now, prehistorically, it was, it was restricted to the Americas. And it was the mainstay of many Native American populations. It was the food of the Incas and the Mayans and the Aztecs. I mean, it, and what I like to say is it wasn't like they were eating a whole bunch of other food and, and some maize. They were eating a whole bunch of maize and some other food. And their diets were based on it. Their religion were based on it. A lot of their politics and culture was based on maize. Their artwork, all it was such an important part of their lives. But when the early explorers came to the Americas, they saw this maze, they saw what important it was in the diet, and they're like, wow, you know, we live in a very similar latitude. We can, you know, the growing season is somewhat similar. It grows here, it should grow home, it tastes good, let's bring some back. And they, and they brought a whole bunch of maize back with them. And it seemed like it was a good idea for a while. And in, in, in certain areas, it started to dominate the diets in places in Spain and Italy, especially in poor areas. And it dominated the diets to the point where you know, true domination. There were people that were malnourished in, in other ways and because they just weren't getting enough food. And now all of a sudden they could eat a whole bunch of maize and all they were eating was maize. Like all they were eating, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, just maize. And what we see first documented in the 1700s was everywhere that maize went, there was a disease that followed in its wake. It was first identified in the, in the 1700s in Spain, and then shortly thereafter in Italy, where it got its name that you mentioned earlier, pellagra, which means sour skin. And then it follows, it goes to Eastern Europe, hits a bunch of different places. It, then it shows up in the, at the end of the Irish potato famine in, in the mid-19th century, when America 
was sending, the United States was sending a bunch of maize over as famine relief food. And the weird thing is that it was good because people who were dying of starvation and sick of star through starvation were now filling their bellies and not dying from starvation. But all of a sudden they were getting sick and dying from this weird disease they had never seen before called pellagra. And then it shows up more recently in the early 20th century, in the, in the 1900s, uh, the 19-teens and 1920s, in the American Southeast, in Georgia, and the Carolinas, and Alabama, and those areas where corn was incredibly important. And in, in poorer areas, corn was the only thing people were eating. And when I say it was a problem, it was a huge problem. It was a problem of such proportions that millions of people have gotten sick, and hundreds of thousands were dying as a result of this pellagra. And in the, in the early 20th century, it was such an issue in, in the United States that we hired an infectious disease doctor by the name of Jeffrey Goldberger. And he and said, you got to figure out, you know, so many people are dying from this. What's going on? And he went in and, and studied the areas that were hit hardest from this. And he reported back and he's like, look, this is a big deal. Not arguing with that, but... I'm an infectious disease doctor, and this isn't infectious. So it's, it's not in my ballpark, and I think it has to do with food. In fact, I think it has something to do with corn. And they dismissed them. They said, you're, out, you're out of your mind. Nothing this bad is, can be a result of food or diet, which sounds very familiar. And don't mess with corn. You know, corn is king in the South. You know, go figure out what this is. So he was so convinced, and he had read some of these accounts. of so He was very aware of what had happened in Italy. He went into prisons and mental institutions and divided the populations in half and gave half of them nothing but a maize or corn diet and the rest they just continued on whatever they were eating and the people that were eating as you can imagine just the corn diet were getting sick with the pellagra and he reported that back and they're like no you know this isn't convincing go figure out what it is we should be able to give somebody a pill or you know and fix them that way and he went to such great lengths it was in 1916 that he and his partner and his wife would hold these parties called filth parties. Now, this disease is a this pellagra was a disease that really impacted impoverished areas, swept through entire families, obviously because they're eating the same thing. And it was very embarrassing to get this. It was it was considered a disease of filth and those sorts of things. So they called these parties filth parties after the disease, and they would gather a bunch of people around and they'd bring somebody out that was suffering from pellagra. And they'd take cotton swabs and they'd swab all the mucus, all the ways that they thought an infectious disease could be spread. They were trying to show people it wasn't. So they would swab all the mucus membranes of the person that was suffering from pellagra. Then they'd swab themselves with it on their mucus membranes. And then they would actually take the skin and the scabs from the people that were sick. And they would put them in these little pills and they would ingest them. They'd eat them. And then they would draw blood from the people that were suffering from the pellagra and they would put it into their own veins, just, and they did this over and over again, just to show that it wasn't infectious. And finally, people believe them. But it wasn't until 1936 that they realized what the issue was. And it was because of a team of doctors in the, in the Midwest that was studying something very similar in dogs that they realized it was because of a niacin deficiency. So when they put two and two together, they, they said, okay, great. We know what the issue is. It's because of deficiency of niacin in the diet. So they then started to, to, now the new mandate was to fortify every baked good with niacin. So if you go into the store and see anything baked goods in the grocery store and it's fortified with niacin, it's a result of the knee-jerk reaction to this thing that was happening for hundreds of years. So sounds like the problem solved, but really it was just a band-aid on a larger issue. 
here's the questions we all should be asking. How come there is no evidence of pellagra prehistorically and even historically in Native American populations that were eating massive quantities of maize and have been doing so for thousands of years? How come this is a very new thing that was an issue created when we took maize out of its traditional use and brought it in other parts of the world and then reintroduced it to the Americas? You know, why is this the case? And how come there's a food, maize, that's responsible, you know, over, or the massive consumption of maize is responsible for producing pellagra in populations because of a deficiency of niacin in the diet where ma whereby maize has massive quantities of niacin in it. I mean, it's so crazy that people were getting, millions of people were getting sick and hundreds of thousands were dying on a diet dominated by maize because of a nutrient deficiency of niacin but they were ingesting massive quantities of niacin in their diet. What, what is the problem? And the, and the problem is it wasn't processed properly. The traditional way of processing maize unlocks the niacin in the maize, and, and, and the niacin and other nutrients as well, but it unlocks the nutrients in maize and makes them available to our incredibly inefficient digestive tract. And that process is what you said earlier, is nistomalization. Prehistorically, it was done by taking wood ash and water creating an alkaline or a high pH, you know, basic solution, simmering the maize for about a half an hour, letting it soak overnight, then rinsing the skins off, and then going ahead and, and, and cooking it in whatever way you want to cook after that. The, 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 literally, the only thing you have to do that could have resulted in saving the suffering of millions of people around the world is a little, a half an hour of cooking and letting it soak overnight. And you take maize, an incredibly difficult to digest and, and in many ways unsafe food for humans to consume and turning it into something that's you know, much, much more nourishing. Now, today, they don't usually use wood ash. Typically, you use something called cal or calcium hydroxide, which is very easy to get at Mexican grocery stores or online on Amazon. Or if you go to Walmart, if you buy pickling lime, it is literally the same exact thing and you can process the maize yourself. Or... You can go to a real tortilleria or a really good Mexican restaurant. And if you get real tortillas made in-house from real masa, it's been through that process. In fact, most traditional maize foods, things like tamales, which bear the name tamale from nishtamalization, it's the middle of that word, has been processed properly if they're made the right way. Most are not. But it's, it's such a great example because here you are, it, we are with the most widely grown grain in the world, the mainstay of diets around the world. And we are literally passing through our bodies still today some of the nutrients in that maze. And we're having, I've been a part of conversations where everybody's trying to figure out, okay, how can we genetically modify corn so that it can grow together? We can get higher yields and grow, you know, feed these growing populations. And I sit there, raise my hand. I'm like, guys, wait, we can have this conversation later. We're not even making use of the maze that we have now. Like the people that are eating maize are literally pooping out some of the nutrients that they're consuming. And we're worried about growing more maize. How about we worry about doing what we need to do to that maize to make it as safe and nourishing as possible? Hi, friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. 
That's right. I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands. And it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like a hundred brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order. So you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste. Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous. And they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. How would you feel about if they came up with a genetic modification to make the niacin bioavailable in corn? I don't even know if that's a possibility, but like that concept. <laughs> I don't know. My, my reaction is I don't like that at all because I like the processing. But it, it's so, it, it does, I guess my answer to that is, I guess we could explore that, but I don't even know why because it's so simple to process it properly. I mean, we do it in our house. We do it here at the food lab several times a week. It's that easy. So was that ash just for the processing part of it? Like, does it relate to when you talk about like the edible clays and ashes and charcoal, or is that something different? That's something a little different. So the ash, during colonial times, you'd have something behind your house called, I think they called it an ash pig. But really what it is, it's, it's this wooden contraption that you dump all your ashes in from your fireplace. And when it rains... The, the water goes through the ashes and what comes out the bottom in a liquid form is alkaline. It's, it's what you used at that point that you could, well, they weren't necessarily nishtamalized maize. You couldn't nishtamalize maize with it, but that's what they used to process all sorts of things, including making soap. 
And then you take that ash water and you would cook it. And what's left on the sides of the pot is called potash. And you'd use that for a bunch of different things, including a leavening agent. The original baking soda was made from potash and then a refined version of it is called pearl ash. And now it's made in a factory and we call it baking soda. Having ash in our food and using ash to process food and other materials is not anything new. It has very, very, very ancient roots. And it's something that just about anywhere you were in the world, you'd be using those sorts of things to control pH and to process food and to process other materials. And right now we have distanced ourselves so far from things like having a fire in our house and using ash for certain things that it sounds really, really weird. Like, oh my gosh, I'm going to use ash for something and put it in my food. But the reality is that was the something we've been dealing with for probably millions of years in many ways. You're being so generous with your time. I have one more big topic I have to ask you about. Sure, sure. No worries. No worries at all. I was so excited to read the chapter all about insects and insect protein. So insects were the original, probably, protein that we were eating as a species? Absolutely. That's interesting. Why are we not still eating them naturally? Just to paint the right picture, let me just say one thing real quick, because you're being super generous with your time too, so I don't want to take too much of it. But uh, let me just paint a real quick picture. I was at a lecture by, oh my gosh, her name escapes me for a minute wonderful anthropologist does stuff with insects. I got her. I'll I'll try to remember it. Anyhow, she was giving this presentation at the Smithsonian about insects. And she had, she was talking about how important insects were in our ancestors' diets and how important they are in, in other primates' diets today, like chimpanzees, and how the most nutrient needy time in a female mammal's life is not when they're born and is not even when they're pregnant, but actually when they're nursing. And and she was talking about the importance of, of insects and the incredible nutrition they can deliver and all those sorts of things. And then she showed a picture. It was the I, I, I have this picture in my head all the time. It was a chimpanzee that was in one had had its baby in one arm nursing it. And in the other hand, had a stick with termites in on it. It was, it was eating the termites. And I just love that picture. And I kind of want to paint that same sort of view for the people listening. Insects were the most nutrient-dense and bioavailable part of our diet until we started processing our food on our own. You know, in other words, if I stripped you of all your technologies and just said, eat, using only your teeth and your fingers and nothing else. And I mean all your technologies, everything from your blender to your knife, to your stove, to your grocery store, to your traps, to anything. It said, eat the most nutrient-dense bioavailable, which is exactly what our ancestors were doing prior to three and a half million years ago. The most nutrient-dense bioavailable food you could access was our insects, period. So there are now for a number of cultural reasons, many of them, and historical reasons, many of them I have absolutely no idea what they are, but for a number of them, we've stopped, many people in the modern, especially modern Western world, have stopped eating insects. But it still persists at very high levels in certain parts of the world. In the book I write about time we spent in Thailand, but you can go to different places, obviously in Mexico and in Africa, where insects are not only something that's still consumed, but they have entire stands at farmer's markets. And you know it's a major part of of diet still today. And they should be. I mean, insects are packed with real protein, good fats, vitamins, minerals, antioxidants. They have uh, in the, in the form of chitin, which is the, the outside shell, they have prebiotic fiber. I mean, they are amazing and they don't take a lot of work to unlock their nutrients and make them available to our bodies, you know, the way that, that plants do. Plus 
you know, not only do they have all that going for them, but they're incredibly easy to grow and they are a much more sustainable food source. I mean, they, they hardly emit any greenhouse gases or ammonia and take very little land and water and food to produce. I mean, it's, it's almost a one-to-one sort of thing, you know, what they're fed and, and what they produce. are, and, and there's very, very little waste in the form of them, them producing waste, right? So it makes complete sense. So why don't we eat them? And why don't we eat them more? Well, the good news is they're at the forefront of a lot of dietary conversations right now from an economical perspective, from a sustainability perspective, but also from a nutritional perspective. There was a big push about 12 or 13 years ago. There were a couple really cool companies like Chapool Bars and Chirps Chips and a couple other ones that were popping up that were trying to introduce cricket. I'm sorry, not just cricket, but insect protein and, and, and fat in, in the nutrition world. And they did okay, but it kind of died off a little bit. But now it's starting up again. I'm thrilled with what I see. I think it's fantastic. There's a couple of really good producers around the world that are raising awesome insects in, 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 in very good ways for human consumption. You know, when I started dealing with insects as food and doing it in my teaching, and, and we'd have to go to like bait shops and, and buy bait and use that, or maybe go to a pet store and get pet food for chameleons and things and deal with that. Now, you know, I, I like, there, there's a lot of great ones, so I don't want to exclude any, but I will tell you, I have a good relationship with a guy named Jared Golden who runs Intomo Farms out of Canada. We get our crickets and cricket powder from him. He organically raises crickets for human consumption and mealworms just for that reason. Now it's kind of, but when most of us, most people listening probably at this point in the conversation, they're just like, yeah, okay. I had it up until that point. Like I I was buying everything he was saying, but, 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 but no, I'm not doing the insects, but why? I mean, if you really get past the cultural barriers and think about what an insect is, most of the people that would say I would never eat a cricket or a mealworm would spend a lot of money to go get crabs or lobster, which are literally the same thing, except they're, they're, in the, they're literally the insects of the ocean. We're just talking about land versions of those same exact animals. In fact, if you are allergic to shellfish, you should probably be cautious eating insects because it's the same chitin. It's the same, in, in most cases, it's the same issue that they have. So, you know, it, it, it's a cultural thing. It's, it's, it's something that you were taught not to like. I can tell you I've been around plenty of people that if I picked up a scorpion or a mealworm or a witchetty grub and held it in front of them, they'd get an ear-to-ear smile, snatch it out of my hand, and eat it with delight. It's very, very cultural. So there's a couple of ways to sort of overcome those cultural barriers. I'm not one for – I don't like to hide things in food. I don't. I think I think eat, the eating of the – it's eating of food – and the nourishment you get from food is more than just meeting those biological needs. It's that cultural thing. It's that, you know, all of, all of it. But it's also an, educa- an opportunity for education and, and connection. And when you hide things in food, you, you sort of skirt some of the educational and connection opportunities. But if you're somebody who really wants to get over that sort of fear of insects and you maybe see the nutritional or the uh, sustainability advantages of, of, the, of consuming insects – then one thing you can do to start is to start with cricket powder. They're entire, you know, if, if, if you are somebody who 
likes, like I do, values the nose-to-tail approach with animals. This is the ultimate nose-to-tail approach to insects because there's no discrimination. It's the entire, in case of, say, crickets, the entire cricket is roasted and dried and ground into a powder that's that's as fine as flour and can be added to literally anything. I have a couple recipes in the book, including our cricket protein bombs, but you can add it very easily. You don't get any legs stuck in your teeth or <laughs> wings to look at or anything like that. And you get all the nutritional advantages of including them. And then, you know, you start to do that and then you start to realize, you know, this, maybe this isn't too bad. And then you can maybe move on to the next step. And I would say the next step would be to try something crunchy, like an entire insect, say crickets again, that's roasted, but hasn't been ground. It's much easier. It, I can tell you from experience, it's much easier and more pleasurable to consume something crunchy in the insect world than it is to consume something squishy that sort of explodes in your mouth. But you know, those are those are fine too in the, in the in the right um, in the right situations. I know we're sort of drawing drawing to an end here, but if you've already taken the step to think outside of the box and operate outside of the box and, and forget all the marketing and advertising and all the, the nonsense of the modern industrial food system. And, and you're really starting to think for yourself and you say, you know what? I can see the benefits of something like raw milk, even though everything on Google is telling me that it's bad. Or I can see the, the advantages of eating completely nose to tail or, or, or maybe you know, the sourdough bread. You know, is it that much of a step? Or are you hindering yourself by putting up these artificial cultural barriers that are there for absolutely no good reason whatsoever and just say, I'm drawing the line at insects. Why? Like I can, I can sit here and start rattling off a whole bunch of statistics that if you had an open mind to the conversation, you'd want to go buy insects today so you can eat them tomorrow because of the nutritional value and the sustainability aspect of, of, of raising and consuming something like insects. Why stop there? So, so I guess maybe one of the things I can leave some people with are the stuff we talked about earlier are not big leaps, like sourdough bread, fermented dairy, you know, fermented vegetables, nose to tail approaches to animal. They're important, but they're not huge steps. Once you've sort of mentally conquered some of that, some other things to start thinking about are should insects, can insects be a nourishing, ethical, and sustainable part of my diet? And should they be, right? And then what other aspects of our ancestral dietary past should I start to maybe think about or dabble? And you mentioned it earlier, geophagy or the intentional consumption of earth is something that almost every animal on the planet relies upon to get essential minerals and also detoxify their food. And when I say that, I mean literally eating things like clay. There's a lot more information about it in the book. I know I don't have time now, Ash and charcoal were always have been a part of our diet for a very long period of time. There are other aspects of ways that were that our ancestors ate and some traditional indigenous groups around the world continue to eat things like pre-mastication of food for our young instead of, you know, for some reason, giving our kids sterilized jars of baby food from Gerber is normal, but chewing our food and giving it to them and not only giving them real food that we've partially digested, but also, you know, providing to them valuable enzymes that our bodies are producing that theirs isn't producing yet is somehow weird. The, the cool thing is this shouldn't sound overwhelming. This should be inspiring. Like, oh my gosh, there's so much I can do 
to improve my diet and improve the diet of the people that I love. That it's a never ending quest, <laughs> I guess. Two thoughts about it really quick. One is I'm actually currently developing with a partner, a pet food line. And so I've been really interested in, it seems that the pet food industry might be a way to get at least production of insect protein more going. Cause I think people are more open to having it for their pets. So maybe that'd be a backdoor way to get it at least in the production system side of things. I don't know how much that would translate to humans. If humans all of a sudden were on board, like if those pre-existing farms could translate over, but, and then I was also thinking I might lose everybody when I say this, but you were talking about how <laughs> you were talking about how, you know, why do we, think of these certain foods as great. And then we have this like crazy barrier against these other foods. And I had this period where I was taking care of our family cat. And when she's with the family, she eats a really awful processed food, pet food diet. So when I had her, I was like, I'm going to feed her like all natural and all this stuff. And so I ordered these freeze-dried nuggets and I was looking at the ingredients on the back and it was literally just, I mean, it was all stuff that we would eat except things that people have barriers against like hearts and organ meat and stuff like that. But it didn't have any like processed foods or chemicals or things like that. And I was like, I sort of want to eat this food because, <laughs> because I was looking at the ingredients. And so I would, <laughs> I was tasting it and I was like, oh, this is actually pretty good. But it was, it was such a moment where I was like contemplating all of the cultural perceptions and psychology we have surrounding food and like, why do we eat what we eat? And I was like, I'm sitting here in the kitchen eating my cat's pet food. So <laughs> I don't know. I just, just, I think people can open their minds <laughs> to the possibilities. Oh, I love that. Can, can I say one other quick, very, very quick, I promise. Super quick. Oh, please, oh no, I have all the time you need. So <laughs> Go for it. So my wife and I run, you mentioned earlier, the Eastern Shore Food Lab, which is our, the nonprofit side of what we do, which is where all of our, our research and our teaching and our education outreach, all that falls under that. And then our foodery, we call it the Modern Stone Age Kitchen, puts it all into practice. So we're providing food that is directly in line with our message and our mission to the community through that. And it's been very eye-opening to me to be on the food production side of things and have to fight the battles. You know, it's, it's one thing to try to convince somebody on a podcast or in a class that, hey, you know, you, you should start fermenting this and raw dairy over here and insects, you know, that sort of thing. It's quite another to convince the local health department and the FDA to actually make food properly. And it, it, it's, um, it is literally mind-numbing the restrictions that are out there for certain things. And when we're fighting that battle and we're, we're trying to do it because it is our dream to nourish people the way we feel people should be nourished. What I, I say this in an empowering way. If you are serious, if, if you, if you hear and believe in the, the, the message that I was trying to deliver today about the importance of the how the importance of proper food processing to make food as safe and nourishing as possible, the, easiest way to do it, to get that food, is to make it at home. It doesn't require a lot of equipment. In fact, people in the past were doing it in caves with open fires and clay pots, right, and stone tools. So you have a kitchen already equipped to be able to do these things. But just as importantly, you don't have the local health department and the FDA and the state regulation agencies and all these sorts of things breathing down your neck trying to prevent you from making food the right way. You could feed your family that food the way you want to do it. And it's very, very difficult to do that 
not only logistically on a, on a production level, but also legally on a production level. So I, I just throw that out there because you know all the things we talk about today, whether it's niche tomalizing maize, butchering an animal, or fermenting dairy, are easily done in your own home. And and if it's if it's just the fact of trying to get over that hump and you know maybe. I need to learn this one little step somewhere. There's a lot of amazing people that can help you. There's great YouTube videos, great support. We do a whole bunch of online classes and in-person classes here. And there, there's just, the information is out there more than it ever has been. And you can learn from somebody in France how to make cheese, you know, tonight, if you, if you logged, on to the, logged on to the right place. So I hope if this is important, to you and you really want to get that food in your body and in your family's body, then at least start to consider trying to make it at home. And it doesn't have to be overnight. I mean, what we're, what we're teaching now and what we're producing has been a, a lifetime journey for us to get to this point, to be able to do it. And just doing one thing and doing one thing for weeks or months or a year is better than doing nothing at all. Even if all you're going to do is make sauerkraut instead of eating raw cabbage, you've made a huge impact on your family's diet. Well, I honestly, I cannot thank you enough for everything that you're doing. I was so excited about this interview and you just went so far beyond because normally when I interview the guests, I mean, they're always amazing interviews, but it's a lot of content within the book. But I mean, I feel like you could have like 20 books. There was so much, so much. So this has been just so incredible. The last question I ask every single guest on this show, and it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is. So what is something that you're grateful for? I am grateful for my wife. And I, and I know this is going to sound cheesy, but it's true. Every single morning I wake up, look at her, and I feel that gratefulness very, very quickly. I, I went blind. I failed out of college. I dropped out of the same college. I, I finally started to get my eyes fixed. You went completely blind? Like you couldn't see? The best, the best they could do with correction was 2,800. I got corneal transplants, started at a new college. It took me 10 years to get my undergraduate at a time when I, I know it sounds strange now, but I didn't think that I was going to ever graduate from college. It was, it seemed like this foreign thing. And I met her at the beginning of my third try at college and she has been so incredible. She and I have not only grown ourselves, but grown together in so many ways. And she has, I'm from this prehistoric, this, this prehistoric mindset where my head is buried in stone tools and, and prehistoric ceramics and food processing and things. And she's the tech side. She does all the computers and all the other side of the technology. And if it wasn't for her, I'd be living in a straw hut in the middle of nowhere, just you know, hunting and doing whatever and helping nobody, including our own family. And she balances what I do and think in a way that makes it, I'm hoping, accessible and relevant to people today. And uh, she's, she's amazing. Well, I love that. And I love that really shows in the book because you tell so many stories where she was involved. Well, thank you again. This has been so amazing. I just want everybody ever in the world to get your book and follow your content. So friends, we'll put links to everything in the show notes. What links would you like to put out there for listeners to best follow your work? So my instinct, my social media is at, at Dr. Bill Schindler. So at Dr. Bill Schindler. And at 
modern Stone Age kitchen is all the stuff that we're doing downstairs here in, in, in the foodery. So those are the two places to follow on social media. And then eatlikeahuman.com is one of the websites you could follow. And the other is the modern or modernstoneagekitchen.com. And between those two places, you can see just about everything that we're doing. Well, we'll put links to all of that. And again, thank you so much, Bill. This is just, I'm just so happy and excited and grateful. And hopefully we can talk more in the future because this was amazing. Anytime. Thank you so much. It was great to speak. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What Win Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.